Thanks, Josh, and thanks, congregation, for that rousing welcome. Um, as Josh shared, my name is Tina. I am the worship pastor here and occasionally will share a message. And so today I have the exciting opportunity to share um, the second sermon in our three-part sermon series on home, what it is, what it isn't, what God is inviting us into as God makes his home with us. And um, for those who weren't here last week, Matt shared uh, beautifully last week about how we find ourselves longing for a home we've never actually been to as we move from our origin story in the Garden of Eden all the way to the city that is to come at the end of all things. This week, I'll be sharing with you a little bit about um, how do we navigate our earthly empires as citizens of heaven. So citizenship... It's kind of like my wheelhouse a little bit. Um, over the past few years in my day job as an immigration lawyer for undocumented people, I've learned a lot about American citizenship and how it works. So I'm about to break it down for you briefly, just like a, a citizenship 101. Are you guys ready? I'm going to teach you all about American citizenship real quick. Immigration class. So in a nutshell, it is a highly exclusive status. Step one, it starts with borders. Yeah? If you're lucky enough to have been born within those borders, congratulations, you are an American citizen. Um, but if you happen to have been born outside of those borders, um, your physical body just is not American enough to automatically be a U.S. citizen, then, and you want to become one, you have to prove to Uncle Sam that you deserve to be a citizen. And that doesn't come easy and it doesn't come quick, all right? So the path to citizenship is a long one um, and it, it's multiple steps. Step one, immigrant visa, right? And some of them have long wait lists, like 10, 12 years, I'm talking wait lists. Then you have the green card, lawful permanent residency. Then five years later, you have citizenship after a test and a civics test and an English exam and an interview and an oath. And then you get the little flag and you're a citizen. Um, and so I've come to learn that uh, not everyone is allowed on the, on the path at all, right? So if you want to get on the path, there's essentially three buckets that you can pick from, and I've outlined them here for you. So you got connections. You got to have connections. Uh, that's family ties, like a spouse or a sibling or a child who's a citizen. Or you can have credentials with a strong preference for like the highest of the highest of the fancy of the professional skills, like high-ranking executives, maybe you're a millionaire, maybe an award-winning artist who's really fabulous, um, someone with essential skills for particular jobs, then maybe, just maybe, just maybe you can get one of those visas. Or the third bucket, which is a qualifying experience of horrific trauma. These are the humanitarian immigration status, like survivors of um, uh, targeted persecution, which is asylum, or visas for victims of crime and human trafficking, people who've been here for 10 years and have kids with extreme medical challenges, but it's all really narrow and it's really hard. And there's always a caveat, but like only if you deserve it though, you can be disqualified if you don't deserve it, if you've done something. So in practice, that's it. Those are the ways you can become a citizen. Um, and when it comes to American citizenship, it is a big deal because once you're in, you're in for life. And the benefits are very real. You get the benefit of permanence. They can't kick you out. You get the benefit of power. You can vote. You can serve on a jury. You can serve in elected office. Non-citizens can't. Um, and then you get mobility. Mobility all around the world, but mobility you choose, not the kind that you are forced to undergo. And when you live in America, without having American citizenship, you definitely notice. Um, because there's this 
because there's a reality that it pretty much sucks compared to having it. There's the constant awareness of your difference, right? The knowledge that you're not really from here and everybody knows it. There's that feeling of being under scrutiny because all it takes is one critical screw up and you could be exiled and cut off from your home and the people you love. There's that feeling of um, always having to look over your shoulder, having to do everything right. Never screw up because the consequences could be twice or three times as bad for you. Um, and it is also not lost on me, as it's probably not lost on many of you here, that you don't have to be legally a non-citizen to feel like a non-citizen sometimes in America, all right? America has many borders, and it's not just the land ones along Mexico and Canada. America has built overlapping borders around things like race and class and gender and sexuality, things that define who is in and who is out. And there are all sorts of long lists of unwritten rules about how do you prove yourself deserving enough to be let in and stay in. So it makes sense that if you have a shot at citizenship, it makes sense to do everything you can to try to get in, right? Um, and in the immigration space, not often, uh, not as often as you'd think in the media, but sometimes people do resort to fraud to get there, like out of desperation, paying somebody $10,000, like just marry me so you can petition me to be here, uh, hoping no one notices the relationship is fake, they typically notice. Um, or, or, you know, like paying top dollar for, for the fake green card with the fake names and the fake social. Um, but the fraud can extend beyond cheating the system. Sometimes it's internal to ourselves. Like the fraud of a distorted sort of identity, right? Where you start changing your name. Your name was Isaac, and now it's Zach. Uh, and you think about your accent, and you, you scorn it. You put it aside. You um, focus on trying to take on a culture and identity that's actually not your own. Um, or intentionally passing as something you're not, like the conveniently presenting as white when your actual race is something that would be excluded under a border long, by a border wall to belonging. So it's worth naming that the demands of citizenship and belonging can seep into our bones, even in unconscious ways, scripting rules for belonging that aren't good, enough, good for us. And we get used to a sort of pretending and posturing um, that can be hurtful to our souls. And I think this is, in a nutshell, the logic of the American dream. Citizenship belongs to some, but not to others. Most people really, really have to earn it. And only then can you really, truly be at home as Americans. Prove yourself, you're in. If you're on the outside, you're not necessarily safe. Now, if we're not careful, I think it can actually be pretty tempting to confuse the gospel with this American dream. The idea that you can belong to God and to the family of God so long as you can prove to God that you deserve it. You read your Bible and you pray, you do enough churchy things or leadery things, you don't screw up too much, definitely believe and affirm the right things about God, take your oath, you are in. Even if you have to perform and pretend just a little bit or distort yourself or hide your messy or harder to understand parts, once you're in the club, you are safe from harm and you are provided for. And with God's help, of course, you can have a spacious, stable, middle-class, productive life with liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and then you get to go to heaven. <laughs> so I actually don't think this necessarily goes without saying, so I'm going to say it. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in fact, is so radically different from the logic 
of American citizenship. See, America invites us to try real hard to be real citizens so we can enjoy the good life inside our border walls. Jesus invites us instead to choose to live as undocumented people, freely embracing our citizenship in a homeland we know we belong to, even though we haven't fully seen it yet, and grabbing tight to Jesus' hand as he leads us through the shadowlands together towards our forever home. Let's pray before we unpack all of that, what that means. <laughs> Holy God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are kinder and better and more gracious than we think you are. Would you please inhabit this space today, inhabit these words, inhabit this time together of attentiveness to your scripture, to your story. Help us to grab hold of your hand and grab hold of your gospel in this time together in Jesus' name. Be with us, speak to us, change us, pull us forward. Amen. All right, so the sort of foundational text we're gonna be looking at today is in the book of Hebrews. This is a letter in the New Testament, um, and there's this incredibly powerful passage that's a famous one, Hebrews chapter 11, that sometimes people call the Hall of Faith. It just gives example after example after example of what faith looks like as it's walked out in the lives of different people throughout history. And so it goes through all these, you know, heroes of the faith, and then it gets to Abraham, the forefather of the story of God's chosen people. And when it gets to Abraham, Scripture, I think, describes what our immigrant calling looks like. So we'll pick up at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And when, as, as the scripture, uh, oh wait, no, there's one more, sorry. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now the text goes on to describe other people who took risks and obeyed and lived by faith and not by sight. And it continues in verse um, 13 with this. They did not receive the things promised, these heroes of the faith. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So I'm going to be sharing... The rest of our time together, we'll spend looking at three invitations I think the gospel of Jesus Christ has for us when it comes to our call to faithfully live as foreigners and strangers here on earth. First, we're called to be aliens, not aspiring conquistadors. We're called to be nomads, not permanent residents. And lastly, we are all illegal, none of us deserving. So we'll go one at a time, starting with the first. We are all aliens, not aspiring conquistadors. So immigration law, like immigrant, it never uses the word immigrant, it's all alien, everyone's an alien. So 
Anyway, conquistadors, so to finding some of the terms here, conquistadors, we know, we know how they work, right? They're the ones who, who set, set up the rules of the game. When they arrive at a place, they take what they believe to be theirs, and then they set up systems for accumulating more and protecting it from others. Conquistadors are the ones who determine the borders for belonging. If you jump through the hoops that they've set, agree to their terms, then you can access the good life and acceptance and then pass it on to your children and their children and their children. I come, personally, from a line of both conquistadors and conquered people. As someone of Puerto Rican heritage, I have descended from black and native people who were conquered and European people who did some conquering. And my parents, um, both of them grew up very poor on the island of Puerto Rico centuries afterwards. And a lot of their childhood, I mean, their childhood was pretty much spent on the underside of those conquests and systems that have been set up. And in that environment, it honestly makes a lot of sense to do your best to think like conquistadors. So you can play by the rules of engagement, because if the end goal of things is stability and accumulation, the conquistador system kind of works for that. Um, because every, every once in a while, there's breakthrough. Sometimes there is breakthrough. And the system that once excluded you can start to work in your favor if you play it right. And so it is. Just one generation above me, my parents were able to work their butts off, got the degrees, put in the hours, migrated to the mainland, learned the culture, learned the lingo, and were eventually able to arrive to a different status, a different place within American empire. And by the time I was born, I was already on the up and up. And so um, I spent a lot of my formative years among aspiring conquistadors. And I've seen, I've seen this, this sort of dynamic play out from my particular vantage point as an upwardly mobile brown woman in America who was fortunate enough to be educated at Yale University. But it isn't just a race or class thing, I don't think. I think white people, brown people, men and women, queer people, straight people, poor people and rich people, citizens and immigrants can all end up living with a conquistador mindset. Um, and the default mindset here, consciously or subconsciously, is to, is to live with an aspiration to some kind of influ, insider or influencer status within the empire that exists. This is like this longing within us to, to belong to a community that is at its core exclusive and stable and provided for. Control, safety, belonging is the end goal. And if we have to jump through hoops or take on a foreign culture or distort ourselves to get there, then that's what it, that's what it has to be. And there are so many, so many examples of how this plays out in real life. Um, I think this happens in professional settings all the time, right? Anytime that there's a ladder uh, that's set in place and you have to play by the rules to climb it. And so I think of the big, uh, there was a big law firm that I worked at for a time and in that place, it was called the partner track. If you log enough hours and schmooze at enough events and show enough FaceTime and befriend the right people, then you can lock in a glorious salary that you could build your own little empire with. Um, I've heard, I'm not in academia, but I've heard some things about academia. <laughs> this particularly intense version of this kind of play-by-the-rules little empire-building rat race situation. But it happens in other ways, too. I think that even people groups um, that have been oppressed by conquistador-led empires can very easily adopt a mindset of an aspiring conquistador in efforts to protect their communities from further harm. It makes sense. 
Um, we see this at play in communities of color and other vulnerable groups that end up setting bigger and thicker border walls for their own safety. Setting stricter and stricter rules for belonging, deciding the terms of ideological agreement and language requirement that must be on the same page, defending the borders from outsiders and making people really, really prove themselves if they want to give or receive anything from the community. All the time, we're building and participating in these little empires of mistrust and conditional belonging where we set the terms or we end up contorting to terms that are set by others. Street gangs function like this. So do country clubs. Activist circles, depending. Political parties, Lord knows. And um, sadly, even churches and Christian denominations can sometimes fall into this trap. But I need to be really clear here. Jesus was never an aspiring conquistador. Jesus and his followers were unequivocally aliens. So we see this at work in the scripture in the Gospel of Luke and how he sends out his followers on mission. We'll pick it up in Luke chapter 9, um, verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, these are his closest followers, right, the disciples, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Interesting, right? He equips them with power. They arrive in these new places stacked with all the things that they would need. They'd be ready to be conquistadors if they wanted to. But then the instructions get weird. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Oops. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. The very next chapter in Luke, he does the same thing, but with a bigger group of people. He sends out like more than 70 people, and he has a couple of lines in here that I think are really beautiful and illustrative. It says, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves, being explicit here. Um, there's the same instructions. Don't take the purse, the bag, the sandals. When you enter a house... First say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Then you heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, not if, when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Jesus' disciples weren't sent out to infiltrate sub-communities and then do their best to try to rise among the ranks to secure belonging and influence there. Right? They were sent empty-handed. And because they were empty-handed, they knew how to receive what they needed from those around them. And when they were rejected... They didn't fight for belonging or create their own little empires. They just shook the dust off their feet and kept it pushing. It also feels important to note that the disciples weren't sent as refugees. Jesus starts by giving them power and authority in an otherworldly and amazing sense. They arrived very well-resourced and very well-equipped, but they still chose to arrive empty-handed. They know the power and authority they have, but unlike conquistadors, they don't use it to dominate or draw strict boundaries around themselves. They receive 
with open hands, and they let themselves be fed by the people around them, and that's what conquistadors are missing out on. Unlike conquistadors, aliens know full well that the rules of the game in any given society or sub-community aren't made for them. They're not fighting to claim the benefits promised by the authorities of the land because it's not for them. They stay connected to their otherworldly authority, so they don't need anyone's stamp of approval. They are powerful, but they are empty-handed, and because they're empty-handed, they actually know how to receive gifts and not just claim rights or entitlements. I think this is a gift. I think there's a real freedom in being an alien. I mean, you say, like, we're aliens. That sounds like a bad thing, right? Um, but I think Jesus has freedom in store for us with this life. Now, I'm not, not you know, not to brush over the fact that to be an alien is a very, very vulnerable thing. It's vulnerable to be sent into this harsh world with no bag, no purse, no money. It's vulnerable to, ex especially vulnerable to expect to receive gifts from people who might not be people of peace. It can feel a lot safer to do what the conquistadors do, right? Play by the rules, grab what you need, protect it at all costs. But there's freedom here. We don't have to fear rejection because we know who we're returning to, who we ultimately belong to. We actually get to receive gifts, receive true hospitality, to delight in feasts prepared for us by others. Um, and as we receive in freedom, we get to fully and authentically give away what God has given us, not by forcing it onto anybody, but freely. Like the disciples, they receive a good long meal, and then they heal everyone. Um, I feel like a story that illustrates this is um, from a conversation I had just this weekend with a missionary, a sent out one, out in the Middle East. And when we were sitting having breakfast, she shared this beautiful anecdote about one of her early days out there. She caught a taxi home, and on the drive, um, she's trying to go to her apartment, and then they drive by a wedding that's spilling out. The celebrations are spilling out onto the streets. And to her surprise, some dude walks up to the taxi as it's stuck in traffic, knocks on the window, right? And all of Mandri's like American impulses are like, don't you dare lower that window. I don't know who this man is. But the taxi driver lowers the window. He's like, hey, what's up? And then they hand him a plate with some dessert on it. And they're like, would you like some? And he's like, okay. Starts eating it. Turns to Mandri, he's like, this is delicious. Are you okay if we pull over and just kind of... And so, so the taxi pulls over. They all get out. They sit at the wedding. They're eating, and it's taking a very long time. Manjri's getting to know this family, and the niece is getting married, and they're in the, kind of in the neighborhood close to where she lives. And then from that moment on, every time she walks by the area and sees the family, they stop. They have, like, a long conversation, and she was sharing that as an illustration of how, like, she doesn't ever feel lonely out there. It's just different. Um... And she said something I think that was really wise. And she said to me that this experience reminded her that as a missionary, she's called to share the gospel, not just impose the gospel. <laughs> share it. Jesus doesn't send us to go lay claim to a place, strive to give what we're called to give on our own terms. He calls us to show up empty-handed, expecting to receive something beautiful from those around us, feasting in freedom, without pretense or conditions, unafraid. Um, so, um, I just invite you to consider, maybe take a pause and think if there are any areas in your life where you might have been living like an aspiring conquistador, where you're stuck playing by the rules of a game that's designed by ultimately the logic of self-protection and fear, not freedom. Um, are there any places where Jesus might be inviting you to be an alien, sent empty-handed from foreign authority? What are some ways maybe you can open your hands, unclench your fists to receive? Um, and then I'll invite you to also consider maybe, do you know the authority you've been given? 
And if not, you can ask Jesus to give it to you afresh. All right, that's the longest one. Uh, Second one (laughs) is that we are nomads, not permanent residents. I read a book once by this dude named Francis Chan and his partner Lisa Chan. It's a, a marriage book. It's called You and Me Forever. It's supposed to be a book about marriage, but there's this one illustration that I think applies much beyond that context, and it's stuck with me ever since. He compares life on mission with Jesus to camping. I have never been camping. I'm pretty sure I would hate camping. It doesn't make sense. Like, you're sleeping outside. You're cold. You have to cook mediocre food, like, on a fire. It takes a lot of work. It doesn't make sense. But I know some people really love camping. They find a lot of joy and freedom in it. Um, And I... Speaking as someone who's never been camping, I'm pretty sure this is true. It can only be fun if you know that it's temporary. (laughs) You can enjoy camping, at least in part, because you know you have a warm and soft bed waiting for you. You're going to go there when the camping trip is done. So that knowledge allows you to endure being uncomfortable, cold, smelly, dirty, because you know that where you're going is nothing like that awful experience. In a deeper sense, knowing where you're going frees you up to be present to beauty even when you're in that thing. Um, But if the campsite was supposed to be your forever home, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't like camping as much as you do now. There's no way you would tolerate it. The discomfort, the dirtiness, the shabbiness, it would actually lead to incredible anxiety, frustration, and fear. Because that's not a vacation, that's just homelessness. And anyone who, (laughs) it's true, anyone who has been unhoused can tell you it's awful. Life on this earth in community with others can be a beautiful experience, but it's also hard. It's really cruel. Existence in the different empires we inhabit can like constantly hurt us. So many of us, including people here in this room, feel unsafe and unprotected, um, especially people who lack the kinds of armor we've come up with for survival on this earth, like money and generational wealth and racial privilege and all the privileges, right? And I think some of us can feel like church, the community of believers, is supposed to be an expression of that forever home here on earth, where the rules of empire aren't at play, where we treat each other rightly and we're all lit up by the light of Jesus. But the reality is that even in our churches, right, we all carry our baggage and our borders and our jagged edges, and we're all still clunkily working towards that heavenly city. Um, And even the best designed, smoothest running churches are still shabby tents compared to the homeland that we're really called to. Um, And I think that the enemy of our souls would love to distract us by having us forget that these tents ultimately are temporary. To forget that like we actually have a forever home that is so much more beautiful and whole and healed, and that's ultimately where we're going. And we can grab hold of it now, and we can live in bits and pieces of it now and and celebrate the glimpses of it now. Um, But if we're distracted by the pursuit of permanent residency here, we can miss all of that. Um, And I think the Spirit has a word of hope for us in all of this. We read earlier in Hebrews how God is preparing a city for us, right? A country we're all longing for. In the um, second, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, puts it this way. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. 
For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Surely may or may not have more to say about this scripture next week, so stay tuned. But there's this one phrase that the, 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 the house we're ultimately hungry for is not built by human hands. It's fashioned by God. And in the meantime, we groan for it. We're hungry for it. But we also get to partner with the spirit of God to give it expression in the here and now as a sign of what's to come. But let us take care never to forget that it's a sign, not the fullness necessarily. Our story is a forever story. So this life and every single imperfect and painful community we build is not the end. We're not permanent residents. We are nomads. We're not homeless. We still build our home. We still fight for justice. We still take care of the land that we inhabit. Um, but we can't lose sight of our groaning. We can't lose sight of our hunger for our forever home. Because I think if, we, if we're building permanent residences here, we can risk being too distracted to notice the glimpses of heaven breaking in around us. And we can get uh, stuck in a bit of despair if we think this is really all there is. We can't create this city by our excellence or expertise. Only God can build it. So let's not forget to groan for heaven. Some questions for your consideration is maybe you've been enjoying, you're someone in a place where right now at least you've been enjoying the benefits of permanent residency lately. Um, are there any ways maybe your hunger for home has been dampened by some of the American creature comforts? Um, maybe the spirit might be inviting you to go camping to get uncomfortable a little bit. Um, reawaken your hunger and groaning for your forever city. Or maybe you're more in a place of pain and discomfort here, and that pain is at risk of overshadowing the hope and beauty of your forever home. Invite the Spirit of God to fill you up. Anyone who asks for the Spirit will receive it um, to give you a new deposit guaranteeing the hope to come. Lastly, we are illegal, not deserving. Now, if you're someone who uses the term illegal, just to describe people that may be clear, people cannot actually be illegal. I'm a believer you shouldn't call people illegal. No ser humano es ilegal, not a fan. But for the purposes of this message, it can be useful. We've all heard Jesus talked about as the good shepherd. He takes care of the sheep, keeps them safe, and the sheep pen fights off all the bad guys. But I heard an illustration once from a minister named Bob Eckblad. He ministers in prisons among gang members and migrant farm workers. And I, and I found it very compelling. I had never heard this before. But he describes Jesus not only as the good shepherd in Spanish, el buen pastor, but el buen coyote, the good coyote, like immigrant smuggler. <laughs> um, and the whole idea behind that is like, uh, well, yeah, the, this message, this everything that I'm saying is in one way or another about how we are citizens of heaven, right? We're not citizens of here. Um, but there's something about our kingdom immigration status that we need to understand deep in our bones if we're ever going to really fully receive the good news of the gospel. Our citizenship in heaven is not something we can earn. It's just not. There is no path to citizenship in heaven. No amount of connections or credentials or qualifying experiences that can sneak us in. There's no investor visa to heaven, which is a real visa where you give like millions of dollars and like can maybe get a visa. Um, you can't give enough money. You can't create enough jobs to get let in. There's no special parole where you can apply for your good moral character. There is only Jesus. The only path to the country we really fully belong to is for Jesus to sneak us in. 
Um, we return to the book of Hebrews. There's another exhortation, the next chapter, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these heroes of the faith, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, true communion and right relationship between God and humankind together at home forever, he endured the cross. Jesus did the work we could never do. Jesus died in an ultimate expression of love, an ultimate refusal to bow to the conquistador logic of the society he was born into. And in the process, he defeated every barrier that would disqualify us from communion with God. And to join him on this journey demands everything from us. Um, we have to empty our hands, live as foreigners and strangers here. We have to fight to keep from getting entangled over and over in the empires and lust and greed of this world. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus, our buen coyote, grabs us by the hand and very much knows the way and is very excited to lead us there. If we would just let him. He is waiting for us to notice him, being like, come on, there's a better place, let's go. Um, invites us to take his hand, and every time we do, fills us with the spirit over and over and over again to give us the energy and the, the supplies that we need. Um, he knows how to lead us and navigate the perils of the desert. He knows how to fill us with the spirit. He's the gate through the border wall of sin that keeps us from God, like, and on the other side, al otro lado, there is a land where there are no more tears. There is no more exclusion, no more racism, no xenophobia, no queerphobia, no phobias of any kind, no conquistadors, no exploitation, no borders, no exclusionary systems. There is true, complete, free, life-filled family with God and with one another, a feast, even in the presence of our enemies, lit up in the light of God. There is communion, so let us not forget, beloved church, that that is where we, that is our home. That is our home. And we may see on this earth everything that doesn't look like it. And we may try to create our versions of it and then they fail. But at the end of the day, we grab the hand of Jesus, our smuggler friend, and we go. <laughs> and we live freely with open hands as aliens, as nomads, um, as people who know that they're illegal. But we're lit up with joy in friendship with God all the same. I'm gonna invite up um, whoever is invited to give the prayer words for today. Oh, this is the revelation passage that Matt shared last time about how death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Um, invitations, I have three, three core ones basically. One is um, for anybody here who has been wounded and bruised up and injured by the conquistador game, by empire, by um, whether that's like experiences of rejection, being on the outside of a border wall, um, or um, experiences of distortion, trying to be inside of one that doesn't quite feel like home for you and it's getting tiring. I think the spirit has healing for us. 
we're supposed to give our peace, and if it isn't received, it's supposed to return to us. So if you have some dust that's stuck to your feet, I think there's an invitation to shake, shake it off. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, the second invitation is for those who maybe have, without noticing it necessarily, with, not on purpose necessarily, but had their hands clenched around their, their territory. Um, the things that feel like theirs have like been aiming for that, angling for that stability, and, and feels risky to open up and expect someone outside of your border to like give you something. Um, I think the invitation is to awaken to risk by unclenching your hands. Um, by letting go of maybe that mentality and asking the Holy Spirit, well, where's a, where's a risk that you're asking me to step outside of my comfortable empire and maybe try on um, the, men the, the, the experience of someone camping, someone on the outside, someone with open hands to receive in a different, risky, vulnerable way. And then lastly, I think is an invitation to repentance. Um, for any of us who know that we've been tangled up in, um, in something other than the gospel, uh, to repent and grab Jesus' hand and let him lead you um, to a different sort of place.